touch us, but more than asking him to do something, let's open our hearts and tell him what we're going to do. We're going to open our hearts to the word of the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for your word because in a world that's shaking, it is secure. And in a world that is changing, it never changes. In a world that sometimes seems upside down, it is right side up. It is a solid rock that we can trust in. And so God, we approach your word with joy and with interest and with love. And we approach your word with submission. God, we want to know what your word says so we can do what your word says. We don't want to just be hearers of the word, but we want to be doers of the word. And I pray that blessing of doing the word over every person that will hear this tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said amen. Well, we are in part two of a series, and the dangerous thing about this one is we're not sure how many parts there are, um, but we're in a series called The Last Word. It is the Gospel of John. And as we talked about last week, it is entirely accurate to say that the Apostle John has the last word about Jesus in the New Testament because his gospel and his three epistles and the book of Revelation, which he penned, they are the final documents written by any of the apostles. Now, you know that the book of Revelation is placed last in your Bible, but chronologically speaking, you could take all five of John's books and put them at the end of the scripture because he puts his pen to parchment more than 60 years after the day of Pentecost. And so as John begins to write, he's keenly aware, I'm the only original voice left. I'm the only one of the apostles, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who also wrote gospels, they're gone. Um, Peter is gone, crucified head downward. Paul is gone, beheaded by Nero. And so he's the only surviving elder of the New Testament for about 30 years. So for the past three decades, John is the voice of the original apostles. So when he begins to write his gospel account sometime after AD 90, he really does have the last word on the Lord Jesus. And that's why the gospel of John is so very unique. You see, by the close of the first century, false teaching was already beginning to rear its ugly head in the church. And that's why the gospel of John, the last gospel, the last word, it does more than any other gospel to tell us not just what Jesus did, not just what Jesus said, not just where Jesus went, but who Jesus is. Because brothers and sisters, if we lose that revelation of who Jesus is, no other scriptural revelation really matters. Now, um, I, I looked up a word here, um, and since I came into church, these phones are handy for something. Um, everyone say the word false. Now, I debated, I'm kind and tried to be accommodating, and I don't want to offend anybody, so I tried to find a different word other than false. Um, but if I use alternative or alternate, it sounds like it's an actual option. So false means not according to truth or fact. False means incorrect. Uh, false means mistaken or wrong or untrue. So somebody say false. False. 
because when I put a couple of statements up on the screen in a moment, uh, you're probably going to be like me, a polite Canadian wanting to please everybody, and you're going to recoil at the word false. But if something's incorrect or wrong or untrue, it's false. There's no way around that. And so uh, Jesus and I, we, we went back and forth on that word, but we ended up with false. If we lose the revelation of who Jesus is, we end up with some very tragic results and, in fact, some very dangerous results. The first thing we end up with, if we lose the revelation of who Jesus is, is we end up with a false understanding of the Godhead. You see, Jesus isn't just sort of like God. Jesus isn't just a part of God. He's not a subordinate God. He's not part of a trinity of gods. Jesus is God manifest in a body of flesh. I am come in my Father's name, John 5, 43. I and my Father are one, John 10, 30. He that has seen me has seen the Father. That's pretty plain, John 14, 9. He is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1, 15. God was manifest in the flesh, 1 Timothy 3, 16. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, Colossians 2, 9. So if we lose the revelation of who Jesus is, we actually end up with a false understanding of the Godhead. It's very dangerous. Secondly, we end up with a lack of authority in our prayer if we lose the revelation of who Jesus is. You see, the name of Jesus is your authority. It is your source of authority when you pray. If you pray in your name, good luck. If you pray in the name of our church fellowship, good luck. But if you pray in the name of Jesus, that is a source of heavenly eternal authority. If you shall ask anything in my name, Jesus said, I will do it, John 14 and 14. Whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you, John 16, 23. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, Colossians 3, 17. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them, Matthew 18, 20. I would say that's some authority and some power when you're gathered together. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong. That's what the apostle said in Acts 3 and 16. It wasn't us. Don't look at us. We didn't do this. We couldn't do this. We couldn't heal him. But it was the name of Jesus through our faith in his name that has made this man strong. So it's very important to have a biblical understanding, a biblical revelation of who Jesus is, that he is almighty God, the one true, ever-living, never-dying God manifest in a body of flesh. Otherwise, you end up with a false understanding of the Godhead. Otherwise, you end up with a great lack of authority when you pray. And worst of all, because it affects your eternal destiny so much, we end up with, and here's this word again, and I apologize, but I don't apologize. What's the kids say? Sorry, not sorry. We end up, if we don't remember who Jesus is, if we don't catch the right revelation, we actually end up with a false baptismal formula. 
And that's very dangerous. Even a cursory reading of the book of Acts and early church history will reveal that every single first century believer was always baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. But when denominations lose the revelation of who Jesus is, a false baptismal formula is the end result. If you can come up with a better word for false, I invite you to try. But false means wrong, incorrect, or untrue. And that's what it is. If you look at the scriptural reference... Peter and the Jewish people he preached to in Acts 2 and 38, he said, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. If you look at young Philip preaching to the Samaritans in Acts 8 and 16, it says they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. If you look at Peter preaching to the Gentiles, and by the way, he really wasn't fond of going to the household of Cornelius, but he went, God made him go. In Acts 10 and 48, when he got there and he saw their hunger and he realized what God was up to, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Jesus. Paul and John's disciples, he finds them in Ephesus, Acts 19 and verse 5. They've been baptized a different way. He tells them you need to be rebaptized, and the Bible record says they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Even when Ananias was sent under duress, by the way, to Saul of Tarsus, all they knew of Saul of Tarsus at this point in the book of Acts is that he is a Christian killer. All they know about him is that he'd like nothing better than to throw their family in jail and put them to death. So Ananias is sent to Saul to give him the message of the gospel, to tell him how to be converted after God arrests him on the road to Damascus. Years later in Acts 22 and 16, Paul is recounting what Ananias said to him. Here's what Ananias walked into that house and said to Saul of Tarsus. And now what are you waiting for? Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Somebody say the name. So if you're going to have a biblical baptismal formula, you've got to have the name of Jesus in it. Now here's an honest question. And anybody that asks this question, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and, tell, and, and just assume that they're being honest and they're being sincere. People say, well, what about Matthew 28 and 19? Because Matthew 28, 19, at the end of one of the other gospels says, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So a sincere person could easily be mistaken and say, well, wouldn't that be an appropriate baptism? formula. But there are some challenges with that. Number one, nobody's being baptized in that verse. In fact, the disciples and Jesus are way up on a mountain from where he's about to ascend. There's no water up there. Secondly, name is singular in this verse. It's not names of the Father and Son and the Holy Ghost because those aren't names. They are titles. They are designations and titles don't have any authority. But those three titles describe one name and that singular name, that powerful name, that saving name is the name of Jesus. Thirdly, and I think maybe most importantly and most logically, see, Studying a little history will help you. 
Matthew wrote those words in A.D. 62, 30 years after the day of Pentecost. And so when Matthew wrote those words, he wasn't trying to contradict what he and the rest of the apostles had preached throughout the book of Acts time. Matthew was actually writing to the Jews and he was actually making a strong statement about the oneness of God. That the Jesus that we've preached for the last 30 years, the Jesus in whose name we've baptized every single believer for 30 years, he was the father in creation. He was the son who came as our Messiah and he is the Holy Ghost that has been indwelling believers for the last three decades. He's making a theological statement. And so when you look at the apostles in the book of Acts, they didn't just repeat Jesus' command. They obeyed Jesus' command. Most of the events that you read about in the book of Acts are written and happened before Matthew ever wrote those words. The real question isn't what about Matthew 28, 19? The real question is what about Matthew 28, 18? And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Sounds suspiciously like God Almighty to me. You can't have two people who have all power. You can't have two gods duking it out for preeminence and prominence. When Jesus says all power is given to me in heaven and in earth, he's not lying. He's telling you, I am almighty God. Therefore, you go and baptize them in my name. Now, the apostle John, he's even further along than Matthew. Matthew writes 30 years after the day of Pentecost. The Apostle John writes another 30 years after Matthew, sometime around A.D. 92. And of course, he reflects this revelation of the oneness of God in every one of the books that he pens. Here's what he says in his letter called 1 John. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the word, there's a, a title that we're familiar with from this gospel. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood. The three elements of the new birth experience. And he says, these three aren't one, they but they work together as one. The spirit, the water, and the blood work together. When you repent, when you're baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost, those three elements of blood, water, and spirit, they work together. They agree in one. So the operative and the emphasized word in these verses is not the word three. That's not the word that's emphasized at all. The emphasized word is the word one. Now, this is very important. John, and this is Bible study, by the way. John is not alluding to a trinity. Because at this point in church history, there is no such thought as a trinity except in one place, in paganism. In the Far East, India has a trimurti, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. Israel's ancient slave master, Egypt, they have a trinity, Osiris, Horus, and Isis. Israel's archenemy, Babylon, has a trinity, 
Nimrod, Tammuz, and Semiramis. The brilliant Greeks, they have a trinity, Zeus, Apollo, and Athena. The brutal Romans, they have what they call the Capitoline Triad, their version of the trinity, Jupiter, Juno, and Minerva. And every time Israel has backslidden all through the years and the centuries of the Old Testament, they have always served a pagan Canaanite trinity, Baal, Molech, and Ashtoreth. So when John is saying these three are one, he's not emphasizing three. He's definitely not emphasizing a trinity. That's not at all what he has in mind. What he has in mind is to echo these words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Other religions may have a multiplicity of gods, but we know there's only one God and his name is one. So John is given the last word in the scripture because he most clearly presents Jesus as the last word from God. God has always manifested himself in various ways, but Jesus is the ultimate manifestation of God. The word that John writes about, the word is a person, and that person is Jesus and that's why John's gospel starts so very differently from Matthew and Mark and Luke who write 30 years earlier. And we touched this last week, so we'll go very quickly here. John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the word, the, the logos, the expression of God, the, the thought and, and the emotion and the desires and the will and the personality of God, if you will. In the beginning was the logos, the word, and the word was with God and the word was God. But here's what's much more important for you and me. And the word that was up in heaven, the word that was eternal, the word that was so holy and righteous, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we got to behold his glory. It was the glory as of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. There was enough truth in him to tell us the truth, but there was enough grace in him that when we didn't measure up to the truth, he could forgive us, he could heal us, he could restore us. Oh my goodness. So John uses in those two verses, he uses a creation image from Genesis in verse 1, in the beginning. But he uses a redemption image from Exodus in verse 14, because in the Old Testament, God dwelt in a tent called the tabernacle. But in the New Testament, God dwelt, literally, the verse there, the word there is, he tabernacled among us. We're not too far off right now, and if you hate Christmas, you'll hate this, but we're not too far off from celebrating Emmanuel, God with us. That's exactly what was happening when the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. He lived among us. Now, the word baptism, everyone say baptism. The word baptism is not mentioned in the Old Testament, but the New Testament actually opens up with the ministry of John the Baptist, and his ministry is discussed in all four of the Gospels. And John the Baptist's ministry is all about baptizing. The Jews already practiced ceremonial washings for purification. They, they did that all through the Old Testament. Ceremonial washings for purification. It wasn't called baptism. It was called mikvah. And they had special places 
uh, uh, to, to immerse themselves in water before going into the temple. It's actually a little uh, interesting side note in history. Where did they baptize all of those people on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem's also up on top of a mountain. I can tell you where they did. All along the main street, right beside the Temple Mount, there were all these booths. Some of them have, have existed until the current day. You can see them. The archaeologists have uncovered them. And you actually step down some steps and you can walk so that you are under the water. They did ritual washing. That's where they baptized 3,120 people in the name of Jesus on the day of Pentecost right outside the Temple Mount. What a testimony that may have been. Can't you imagine what would happen if we took 3,120 people down to the St. John River and just started having this mass baptismal? That's what caught on fire in the city of Jerusalem. So the Jews, they had all these special places, mikvah, to, to immerse themselves in water for purification. So they understood exactly what John the Baptist was preaching about when he talked about baptism. But what was different this time was that Old Testament ritual was about ready to become a New Testament reality. John's ministry was all about getting people ready for the Messiah. His message was repent, and his baptism is a baptism unto repentance. You can read that in Acts 13, 24, Acts 19, and 4. His baptism was a baptism unto repentance. It's different than New Testament church baptism. John the Baptist taught people that they needed to confess their sins, but he constantly stated that his ministry... And all of the baptizing he did was only pointing ahead to something and someone that was much greater than he was. Here's what he said. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I. I'm not even worthy to get down on my face and untie his shoes. But he is coming and when he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And sure enough, one day John the Baptist, that great prophet, he had the privilege of introducing to Israel the someone he had been talking about, the Lord Jesus Christ. Other prophets in the Old Testament, some like Isaiah, magnificently so, they had seen Jesus and spoke about him in their prophecies. Magnificent, beautiful, powerful prophetic words. But see, they only got to see Jesus from afar. 400 years off in the distance. 600 years off in the distance. 800 years off in the distance. But John the Baptist got to touch him up close. John told everybody that listened to him, this Jesus is going to do something that no prophet could ever do. Jesus can do what no tabernacle uh, formality could ever do. Jesus will do what no sacrifice or priesthood could ever do. Jesus is going to take away the sin of the world. And the very next day, John 
saw Jesus coming to him and he said, behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Let me tell you something. We're not here because we got a badge in religion. We're not here because we've lived so good for 30 or 60 or 90 days. We are here because of the forgiveness of God because he took our sins away. My. John the Baptist got to be the man who baptized Jesus Christ. Even though Jesus was sinless, God manifest in flesh, even though Jesus did not need to repent, Jesus submitted to baptism for one reason only. He wanted to show everyone that would ever love him, everyone that would ever follow him, everyone that would ever name themselves a Christian or a disciple. He wanted to show us just exactly how important repentance and baptism would be if you wanted to follow him. Jesus answering said to John, suffer it to be so. John was arguing with him. Oh, you've come to me. I need to be baptized by you, Jesus. You're the holy one. You're the sinless one. You're the righteous one. You're the divine one. I need to be baptized by you. What are you doing coming to me? And Jesus said, no, suffer it to be so. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John relented and suffered. He allowed Jesus to be baptized by him. Let me just make a point here and I'll move on. If Jesus was baptized, then you need to be baptized. End of story. End of act one. In Acts 19, we see another situation. John the Baptist's disciples who have already experienced this baptism of repentance, they were baptized by the famous prophet who baptized Jesus. That's pretty good pedigree. I was baptized by the guy that baptized Jesus. And even in spite of that, when Paul found them and found that they only knew the baptism of John, they only had experienced the baptism of repentance that was taught and implemented by John the Baptist, he commanded them to be re-baptized in the name of Jesus. Question, if people baptized by the man who baptized Jesus needed to be re-baptized in Jesus' name, then if you've been baptized any other way except in Jesus' name, you need to be re-baptized in Jesus' name. Here's the setting. It's right in your Bible. I think God put this in here just for people like you. Acts 19, and Paul said unto them, unto what then were you baptized? And they said, we were baptized unto John's baptism. We have pedigree. We were baptized by the man who baptized Jesus. We were baptized. Jesus called him the greatest of all the prophets. That's who baptized us. Then said Paul, you've made a little error here. That was temporary 
That was prophetic. That was pointing ahead. John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance. And remember that John that you love, that's so famous that you were baptized by, remember that John said to the people that you should believe on the one that was coming after him, that is on Christ Jesus. And the second those sincere disciples baptized in a different way, the second they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So the record scripturally is, is just, it's everywhere. You, you cannot get around it. Um, if Jesus needed to be baptized, you need to be baptized. If the people baptized by the man who baptized Jesus needed to be rebaptized in Jesus' name, then you need to be rebaptized in Jesus' name if you've never had the privilege of taking on his name in baptism. When Jesus was baptized, God's voice spoke from heaven and God's spirit, like a dove, descended upon him. Now, what in the world is all that about? Is that the Trinity making a special guest appearance? No. When the dove finally rested on the earth in Genesis chapter 8, no one knew that God's judgment was over. The floodwaters were abated and they were entering a new covenant. When the form of a dove came down out of heaven and rested on Jesus, it was to identify the one who would take our sins away and institute a brand new covenant. And John told uh, or God told John exactly how to recognize him. Here's what John says. And I knew him not. I didn't recognize his identity. But when this happened, I recognized his authority. I knew him not, but the God that sent me to baptize with water, that same God said unto me, upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. See, that dove was assigned to John. It was like a, a big signal from heaven saying, John, this is me. This is the one. God robed in flesh. This is the only one who can baptize people with the Holy Holy Ghost and with fire and the same way that that dove came out of heaven and rested on Jesus at his baptism in the very same way on the day of Pentecost tongues of fire came out of heaven and sat upon the head of everyone that was in that upper room and then everyone that was out in the street received that experience and guess what they were all baptized not unto repentance by John the Baptist he was already dead they were baptized baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so John says, this is he, this is the one of whom I said, after me cometh a man which is preferred before me because he was before me. Oh, he, he may have come after me in time, but he was before me in eternity. Brothers and sisters, Jesus always has the last word because Jesus is the last word, period, end of story. Now, last week we talked about something, we don't use these terms a lot, but last week we talked about John's prologue. 
A prologue in writing is just a, a little piece of, of writing introductory that comes before the main body of whatever it is that you're talking about, a document, a, a gospel, an epistle. So John's prologue is the first 18 verses of chapter 1. And then this week we've been talking about John the Baptist and his ministry of baptism, which is also in chapter 1. So, so this is kind of all chapter 1 of John. The Gospel of John also has an epilogue, and an epilogue is simply a literary device. Uh, the Gospel of John basically goes from chapter 1, verse 19, to the end of chapter 20, and then chapter 21 is an epilogue. So you've got a little short prologue, you've got a longer epilogue at the end of the book. And we'll discuss all of that in a later lesson, and some of you may need to go look up prologue and epilogue in the dictionary anyway, because you think it's another pandemic coming. Um, but before we conclude tonight's lesson, I do want to at least jump way ahead, and I want to grab a couple of statements from the other end of John's gospel, because they have something uh, to say to us here tonight as we're studying this wonderful gospel. Uh, John 21, verse 25. So this is the very end of the gospel. This is the very end of the epilogue, in fact. And here's what John says. Now, this is John the Apostle now, the writer of this book, not John the Baptist, who he writes about. This is John the Apostle. And John says, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. That's John's conclusion of the epilogue to his gospel. That if I had written down everything Jesus did, if I'd written down every miracle Jesus performed, if I'd written down every brilliant statement that Jesus made that just cut us to the quick and, and convicted us, if I'd have written it all down, I suppose the world itself couldn't contain those books. Now that shouldn't be strange to you because if you started writing down all the blessings God's given to you and if you started writing down your family tree and your history and how God saved your grandpa and then that ended up with your mom being saved, if you started writing down everything that God has done for you, this sanctuary probably couldn't contain the books that this congregation could write. God's been so good to us. So John's epilogue concludes with this statement. I haven't written down everything that Jesus did or said. Intentionally, I didn't write it all down. I didn't write down everything I know about Jesus. I didn't write down everything that Jesus said to me. I didn't write down everything that I observed. I intentionally did not write everything because the world itself couldn't contain all those books. In fact, the concluding statement of the main part of his gospel. So the main part ends in chapter 20. Chapter 21 is an epilogue. So the, the concluding statement of the main part of his gospel says the exact opposite. John did not collect everything. In fact, he selected some things. He selected certain things. He didn't write down everything he knew. He didn't write down everything he'd observed or everything he'd experienced. And he knew Jesus. He walked with Jesus. But John selected certain signs to show us who Jesus is so that we would believe in him and have life through his name. Here's John 20, last two verses. And many other signs 
truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples. Here he goes again. Which are not written in this book. I didn't take the time to write them down. I didn't take the space to write them down. You wouldn't have had a gospel of John. You'd have had a whole Bible of John. I didn't write them all down. They are not written in, these, in this book. I didn't pen them in my gospel. But these are written. The things that I have selected. The things that I have chosen. The, 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 the events that I've pulled out of Jesus' life and set them down in order. And I've written them to you at the end of the first century. These are written. These are selected. These things are chosen. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing you might have life through his name. It is so important that we follow scriptural pattern as we try to experience something as mammoth and as awesome and as eternal as God. So if God has holy men of old that under the anointing and the moving of his spirit, they pen words for us to follow it would behoove us to follow what they said and do what they did and obey what's written in the word of God. And so John, he takes delight in selecting things to share with us. His gospel's not like all the other three gospels. They are more like a history of Jesus. John is more like a theology of Jesus. So John does some strange things in his gospel, wonderfully strange things. For example, specifically, there are seven signs, seven miracles recorded in John's gospel, seven signs. He loves the number seven. You've heard seven is God's perfect number. Well, John obviously believed that because he loved the number seven. There are seven signs or seven miracles recorded in John's gospel. And then if you go to the epilogue in chapter 21, there's an extra, it's like a bonus episode. There's a, a bonus miracle, a miraculous catch of fish in the epilogue. But in the main gospel, there are seven signs. Chapter two, he turns water into wine and John specifically says, and this was the first sign that he did. He's doing that intentionally. Chapter 4, he heals a nobleman's son. Chapter 5, it's a lame man. Chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000. Chapter 6, he also walks on the waves of the sea. That's a pretty cool trick. Chapter 9, he heals a blind man. Chapter 11, he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. <clears throat> and that <clears throat> is where the gospel turns. Because by now, Jesus is such a public figure that all of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, they want to kill him. He's becoming too popular. And that's about where it turns. John loves sevens. In his gospel, there's not just those seven signs. There's seven titles of Jesus in the very first chapter. Seven titles. And then there's seven sermons by Jesus Major ones, the sermon to Nicodemus, the, the, the sermon on the new birth, the sermon, uh, I am the bread of life. There's sermons everywhere. I am the light of the world. It's amazing. There are even seven witnesses to Jesus' deity in this gospel. And if you compare the four gospels, you have to sneak over to Matthew and I think Luke for this. But if you compare all four gospels, you'll even discover there were seven sayings of Jesus as he hung on the cross. So John loves sevens more than anybody else. But there's more, there's more, there's way more. There are seven I am statements of Jesus 
in John's gospel. And several of them are interwoven with these seven miraculous signs. Not all of them, but several of them. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. They weave their way all through the gospel of John. And it's amazing. We read, and thank God we have it, we read the beautiful English translations of Scripture. But this is invisible in the English Scriptures. We only see a pronoun and a verb, I am. But it's very obvious in the ancient languages. In Greek, it's ego I me. I am. It's not just a pronoun and a verb. It's a name. A carpenter from Nazareth is using the ancient name of God that was revealed to Moses at the burning bush when God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, this is, this is what you say to the children of Israel, Moses. You say, I am hath sent me unto you. Now that's bad grammar if that's a pronoun and a verb. That's a name. God said to Moses, you go tell Pharaoh and you go tell Israel, I am has sent me to you. So fast forward 3,000 years or so into the gospels and land yourself smack dab in the middle of the gospel of John and Jesus, who they think is an illegitimately born child, Jesus, who they, they think he's born of fornication, that's what they say, Jesus, who's just an itinerant rabbi, he doesn't have a home, he doesn't have any wealth, he doesn't have riches or possessions, he's just wandering around with a ragtag band of disciples and he's doing all these miracles and he's preaching all these sermons and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin are getting more and more and more agitated. But here's the main reason they're getting agitated. A carpenter from Nazareth is walking up to people and saying, I am, I am, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the door of the sheep. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. You can see why they're getting agitated. Jesus is not making some kind of, uh, kind of casual statement. He's reaching back into the greatest moment of revelation in all of Hebrew history where God actually came down and spoke his name. And Jesus is using that name of God in reference to himself. So powerful. John does it better than anybody else because he just hits it over and over. And it's not just those seven I am statements. There are seven other times in the gospel of John that Jesus uses I am, ego I me, in reference to himself. He, he says to that anonymous woman at the well, I am the one who speaks to you. He says to the disciples, afraid that their boat is going to capsize and they're all going to drown. And they look up and Jesus is walking to them on the waves of the sea. And he says, I am, be not afraid. He looks at a group of Pharisees and he says, if you believe not that I am, you will die in your sins. You've got to believe that I'm God if you're going to get delivered from your sins. He says to them in the very same chapter, chapter 8 of John, he says, 
when you have lifted up the Son of Man, on the day when you finally lift up the Son of Man, he's talking about the crucifixion. On that day, you will know that I am. He looks at them when they get arguing with him. Who do you think you are to talk to us? We're the religious scholars. We're the elders. You're just an itinerant, poor, pauper prophet from Nazareth. Who do you think you are? Don't you know we have Abraham for our father? And he looks at them. He said, before Abraham was, I am. He frustrates them, but he's telling them the truth. He's God manifest in flesh. He looks at his disciples when they're talking around the time of the Last Supper and he's talking about the betrayal of Judas and the things that will happen in John chapter 13 and he says, when this has come to pass, you will believe that I am. And in John 18, when they come to arrest him in the garden, they didn't have Facebook. They didn't know instantly what everybody's face looked like in that day. So they challenge him. Are you the Jesus that's been preaching in the temple? Are you the Jesus that's been leading these disciples around? Who are you? And he looks back at this highly trained battalion of Roman soldiers and he just uses his name. He said, I am. And when he said that, they fell on their back like a pile of cordwood. You know why? Because he had a right to use that eternal, awesome, omnipotent name of God. It was his name to use because he was God manifest in the flesh. Let me come to a conclusion. When Jesus uses that name of God, I am, it's the name he used with Moses. You want to know that Moses was pretty amazed to see, first of all, a bush that was burning but not being consumed in the hot desert on the backside of the nation. But Moses was much more amazed when a voice started speaking to him out of the burning bush. And when God said, I am that I am, really he was telling Moses two things. One preacher wrote it this way. He said, what God was telling Moses on that day was this. I am the center of everything. I am in control. I am the solution. I am holding it all together. I am calling the shots. I am the Lord. I am the owner of everything. I am running everything. I am the head of everything. I am in charge of everything. I am the maker. I am the savior. I am all knowing. I am all powerful. I am God. And I love this. At that burning bush, Moses learned not one thing, but two things. He learned God's name, and he also learned his own name. Because if God's name is I am, then brothers and sisters, your name is I am not. Because there's only one I am. So you need to learn your name sometimes in some of your difficult days. I am not the center of everything. I am not in control. I am not the solution. I am not holding it all together. I am not calling the shots. I am not the Lord. I am not the owner of anything. I am not running anything. I am not the head of anything. I am not in charge of anything. I am not the maker. I am not the savior. I am not all knowing. I am not all powerful. And I am most definitely not God. Moses learned it. You know who else learned it? Last scripture. John the Baptist knew it. John chapter 1. And this is the record of John the Baptist. 
when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? (laughs) Kind of blunt. Definitely not Canadian. Who are you? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed. Here's what John said. I am not. That's my name. I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. My name is, I am not. Are you that prophet? He said, no. Then they said unto him, well, who are you? Because we need to give an answer to them that sent us. What do you say of yourself? And he said, here's what I am. I'm not the I am. In fact, my name, if anything, is I am not. I'll tell you what I am. I am just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. He said, you know what I am? I'm an echo of the one who called me. I'm an echo of his voice. I'm an echo of his will. I'm an echo of his love for his creation. I'm just a voice, the voice of that one. I am not the one. He is the one. I am the voice of one. And I am crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. If John the Baptist could stand here and preach this Bible study tonight, he would say, I don't get the last word. I'm just a voice. I'm just an echo. I am not the I am. But I know the I am. I can point you to the I am. I can show you who the I am is. He's right over there. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. All respect to you, John. I know Jesus said that there's no prophet greater than you, but Jesus also said that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. So John, I got one better. When somebody asks me who I am, I can say I am not the Christ. I am not all power. I don't even have my own life in control some days. I am not the I am, but I know the I am. I don't have to say he's over there. I can say he's in here. He lives in me by the power of the Holy Ghost, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I am not the I am. My name is I am not, but I know where the I am is. He lives in me. He died for me. He was buried for me. He rose again for me. He ever lives to make intercession session for me. I am strong in Christ. I am strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Oh my. I wish you'd lift up your voice in worship. I don't get the last word. Jesus is the last word. Jesus is the last word on my life. The devil doesn't have the last word on my life. The world doesn't have the last word on my life. Sickness doesn't have the last word on my life. Opposition doesn't have the last word on my life. I don't even have the last word on my life. Jesus has the last word on my life. Yes, yes, yes. There's a witness to the word tonight. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Jesus is here because the word has been made manifest to us. Oh, worship him. Lift up your voice because he's worthy of whatever you got. He's worthy of whatever you can give him. Yes, 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 yes. 
Etoloto la basia saraboko yeba. Oh, 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 oh. Yes, yes, yes. I thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Whoo. Barrebuko reba letera bosa. Ito rudo reba bashesa babokushesa. Se reboloto la bashesa potoraba pakosa. Shema montola bahasiasa baha. Oh, I worship you, Jesus. Oh, I worship you, Jesus. Just one more time, clap your hands as a show of appreciation and lift your voice in a shout of appreciation to the Lord to the only wise God, to the ever-living, never-dying Savior. And his name was called the Word of God. I don't know how to describe this. It's just kind of weird, but it happens. I'm checked in the Holy Ghost to not just say, and you're dismissed, thanks for coming. Because the word is here right now. So if you just spin around or reach behind you or ahead of you, and just if you'd connect with somebody, we're just going to pray one for another. No big drama, no big trauma. But if the word's here, then the word of healing is here. If the word's here, the word of deliverance is here. If the word's here, then the word of revelation is here. If the word's here, then the word of the miraculous is here. So just lay your hand on somebody and just pray for them. Pray that the word would be manifest in their life. If the word could manifest himself in flesh, you want to believe that the word can manifest himself in the middle of your sickness. If the word could come from heaven to earth, you want to believe he can cross the street into your problems and into all of the heartache that you're facing because the word that was made manifest in the incarnation, that word can be made manifest in your situation. Yes, God. Yes, God. Yes, God. Yes, God. Yes, God. Yes, God.